Well, this uh, last week, the Major League Baseball season started. Uh, Royals, the Kansas City Royals, I'm a Kansas City Royals fan, so uh, they've played two games, they've won two games, they've turned out okay in the end, and I just thought as this week uh, unfolded, though, and as those games were played, you know, there's been lots of talk about how bad the Royals would be this season, and if they'll experience any success, and uh, they won the first two games, which is a really good thing, but man, it's a really long season. There's a hundred and 60 games in the baseball season left. They started uh, the earliest the Major League Baseball has ever started in the month of March. And it'll extend uh, all through uh, basically September. A few teams will play all the way to the end of October. It's this really long season, 162 games that these 25 people play together. They spend all of that time traveling together and working out together and playing these games together. They'll spend a tremendous amount of time with each other. And I just thought there has to be moments on that team when they're getting along really well. And, and everything is, is just great, and they're having a lot of fun, and everything is going smoothly. And there's got to be times when they spend all of that time together that it sort of uh, isn't going well, and uh, it's not going smoothly. And there's got to be some conflict that arises on those teams, on every team, uh, just because they're made up of people, and that's sort of how people work. There's, there's probably going to be these moments when, when something boils over. Uh, maybe one of the most famous teams for having those kinds of relationships were the Oakland Athletics in the 1970s. They won three world championships in 1972, 1973, and 1974. They had a Hall of Fame players. They were very, very talented. And, and with those very, very talented people maybe came some some egos and some uh, need to sort of work through some different relationships. One day in June, June 5th in 1974, the athletics were about ready to play the Detroit Tigers. They were in Detroit for this game and they were in the locker room and, and uh, teammates were bantering back and forth and, and one guy by the name of Billy North made a comment to another guy by the name of Reggie Jackson, a Hall of Fame player, maybe the best player on that Oakland Athletics team. He made a comment to, to Jackson, and for whatever reason, it didn't sit well with Jackson. And for whatever reason, in this moment, Jackson couldn't just sort of ignore it or let it pass, but it made him really angry. And he, uh, reporters described the scene as, as Jackson leaping from his chair in front of his locker and just sort of soaring across the locker room and tackling North in this scuffle, this fight ensues. They're rolling around on the ground, teammates are breaking them apart, and, and they get broke apart, and the fight seems to be over. And, and most typically in these sorts of situations, you know, when you have uh, teammates, people who are close to one another, another, they have a disagreement, and they sort of, maybe it erupts, and they have this argument or this fight, and then they separate, and things sort of go back to normal, but they were separated for a few moments, and then they started fighting again. And by the time this fight was broken up by the starting pitcher for that day, Vita Blue, and the starting catcher for that day, this uh, Ray Fossey, they, they ended up with some bruised shoulders. Ray Fossey uh, played that entire game with a herniated disc in his neck. It, it had him out for six weeks by the end of, uh, all because of this argument, uh, Vita Blue went on to pitch a two-hit uh, shutout in that game and the, the A's won. It, it's sort of a unique situation where there can be all that turmoil and in the end the athletics uh, win the 
the World Series. They have all of this success despite those broken relationships. And that's just not typically how the world works. Maybe in, in something like baseball, that, that can work. But, but most typically, and I think you understand this, you've had enough relationships, maybe enough disagreements and enough relationships that worked out to know that, man, there's got to be more discipline. There's got to be more focus. There's got to be more unity in those teams in order for those teams to most typically be successful. And uh, certainly, we want that if we're on a baseball team. And certainly, we want that if we have a group of people that we work with every day. We want that workplace to be a team that's unified and, and focused and, and is a great place to go. And, and for sure, we want our families, right, to be that kind of unified, focused, disciplined team. And most certainly, we want, as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of God's team, the church, for the church to be that kind of disciplined, unified, focused team. And I think we can be. And in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks to these disagreements that sometimes happen in churches, and he, he, he highlights for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first 11 verses, three steps to helping us uh, have that unified, focused, disciplined team as a part of God's team. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to take a look at the first 11 verses here, three steps that are taught in these 11 verses. You can find a page number for 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on the on the sermon outline that's on the back of your welcome packet, on the back of that bulletin this morning. It'll take you to the page number in the Bible that's around you in the chairs. If you've downloaded the Wallula Christian Church app, you can find all of this information uh, on the app there, and uh, it'll take you quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be taking a look at the first 11 verses here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is what God's Word says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to shame you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, three steps here to, to having that kind of unified team that God desires his church to be. Step number one is to apply the appropriate standard. Paul jumps in in verse one in chapter six and says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When one of you has a grievance against another, I, I find it just a little bit interesting that Paul doesn't say, well, if you ever find yourself with a grievance, if you ever have some kind 
kind of disagreement with someone. Uh, Paul understands that the church is made up of people, and, and when we have people living in close quarters like that Major League Baseball team maybe for uh, 162 games or, or a family or, or any group of folks, there are going to be occasional disagreements. Now we'll talk a little bit about specifically what kind of disagreement Paul is dealing with here, but no matter the relationships, disagreements are going to arise, even, even in the most important relationships we have. I, I think about uh, you know my kids. I have got three kids. They're all in high school, and, and sometimes you see, believe it or not, disagreements among siblings, right? They, they don't always get along. My, my girls will sometimes sort of argue with each other, and, and once in a while they'll say, Dad, did you hear what you know, she said, or did you know what she did? And I'll say, why don't you guys just fight? You know, just somebody throw a punch. Let's go. You know, somebody just fight. And, and they'll sort of, you know, slap at each other and hug each and they'll end up laughing, and it'll be kind of funny, and they'll go away, and I'll think, I am a brilliant father. <laughs> you know, father of the year. So they came out one day, and I don't remember what was going on. It doesn't really matter. They said, hey, do you know what she said? And I said, why don't you guys just fight? And one of them sort of swung at the other, and I thought, whoa, backfire. You know, that, that's not the outcome I was expecting, right? Disagreements arise even among siblings, even among people that we really love and we care about. Uh, for sure, we, we know that, that in our politics, right, we listen to politicians talk about one another and to each other. We know disagreements arise. They've always had disagreements in politics. Uh, we were watching that first Royals game, and towards the end of, of one of the last innings, there was a pitcher on the mound uh, whose name was Burr pitching to a batter whose name was Hamilton. It reminded me that there's always been disagreements in politics. <laughs> You know, there, there's ways to settle those kind of arguments. Uh, even in the church, I remember the first time I realized that, you know, the church, we're, we're supposed to have this, we love each other and we love Jesus and everything's supposed to, everybody's supposed to get along, but there are disagreements that happen in church. And the first time I figured this out, I was a kid and uh, we, I had this couple who was teaching my Sunday school class and they came in one Sunday and said, hey, this is going to be the last week we teach your Sunday school class. And I went home and I asked my folks, why am I, you know, why do we have new Sunday school teachers in this class? They said, well, there's, you know, they decided that Sunday school teacher decided they wanted to attend church somewhere else. And uh, my parents told me this story about how that happened. And it was a little church, and this little church had a parking lot, and they had to decide. It was in disrepair. They had to decide how to handle that uh, disrepaired parking lot. And so they, they took a vote, because that, that's how American churches do things sometimes. And they took a vote, and they were deciding whether or not to take a loan to pay for the repairs of that parking lot or not. That was the vote. And some people thought, well, this, you know, we really need to repair this parking lot, so we ought to take a loan, and, and uh, maybe that's not the best thing, but we should do that. And another group of folks thought, no, we shouldn't take out a loan, and we just have to live with it and save and figure it out. And, and uh, you know, looking back as an adult, you think, well, there were well-meaning people on both sides of that issue. I don't think either side of that concern can be, you know, they're just wrong, you know, they did the wrong thing or they want the wrong thing. Everybody had an opinion that was fair and well-meaning. And uh, But as a kid, I thought, really, we're supposed to, you know, leave a church because of parking lots? And now as an adult, I think, really, we're supposed to leave a church because of stuff like parking lots? And that's exactly the sort of issues that the church in Corinth was having one with another. 
And so when Paul talks about these grievances, he's talking specifically about lawsuits that had arisen within the church and disagreements over stuff. You know, one businessman made a deal with another businessman in the church and it didn't go well. Well, probably that maybe could be overcome, but what was happening in Corinth was one businessman made a deal with another businessman in the church and sort of told him one thing and did the other, and there was some sort of lying and scandal and that sort of thing, and pretty soon they had this disagreement over stuff that needed to be figured out. They needed to to have it handled. And when we have disagreements in church, you know, how do we handle those? Because Paul goes on to say, you know, you have this grievance against another. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? See, what was happening in in Corinth is is that they had this lawsuit, one guy against another, one family against another or whatever, and they they took it to court, just like, uh, you know, public, civic, civil, secular court. And Paul said, do you dare do that? That's pretty strong language, isn't it? He says, you dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. He goes on to say, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now, there's some really unique language and some interesting things going on here, and I won't pretend to understand all of this, because as I try to chapter and verse and see what in the world Paul is talking about when he says, hey, humans are going to judge angels, I've got nothing for you. I don't really understand exactly what Paul is trying to say here, other than in verses 3 and 4, he's saying there's there's a standard that we all need to aspire to. There's a standard that we all need to strive for, and that standard is God's standard. He has this law and this relationship that he wants to have with us and everything we do in life should come under the umbrella of that standard of that relationship with God through Jesus and he said when you try to make decisions outside of that standard when you apply the wrong standard when you apply worldly standards then sometimes you know that's not going to work nearly as well. And, and Paul said, isn't God's standard good enough? Essentially is the question that he's asking in verses three, uh, two, 2 and 3 and, and on into 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You know, why are you trying to settle these issues with this worldly standard? Now, there's something interesting going on here as well because, you know, the the church exists in the world and it's not perfect and and sometimes there are some really big issues that occur and we read about in the news, we see maybe we've experienced this in church ourselves and in church capital C, you know, there's some really big issues that are, are just unlawful kind of stuff that happens in church sometimes and it's it's horrible and it ought not happen and when it does I don't think what Paul is saying is that the church is responsible for sort of handling all of this stuff itself in fact in Romans chapter 13 Paul's going to say look God has placed these civil authorities and and lives to govern in in the world so that there will be law and so that when somebody breaks the law there will be penalties to that breaking of the law and you ought to allow the civil authorities to take care of those lawbreakers. You ought to allow them to to penalize the lawbreakers so that there'll be order in in the world. And so I don't think what Paul is saying is is that anything that happens inside of of a church family, inside of a team, should be kept from civil authorities. That's not what Paul's trying to communicate at all. 
But there's, there's stuff in this matter of, of just, you know, stuff, resources, you know, money, you know, how we treat each other when we have to apply God's standard over and above uh, the world's standard, where the world might say, well, this is an okay thing to do, but God says, no, you, you would, it would be better if you would suffer wrong yourself, which he'll go on to say. Verse 5, uh, Paul says, I say this to, sh- to your shame. In other words, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know better than this. We've talked about this growth that should have happened in your lives and, lives and how you've ignored that and you keep applying the world standards to these, uh, to these situations in the church. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough, in verse 5, to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So that instead of the world knowing that we're Christians, that we're disciples by the way we treat one another, by our love for one another, we're announcing that we're followers of Jesus and then we're suing each other in these courts. And and Paul said, how can that be an example of what Christian love looks like? To have lawsuits in verse 7 at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Paul goes on to say, look, even before we get to this end result of the disagreement, the disagreement is enough. When you choose to be, behave selfishly, when you choose to put self ahead of others, then, then you're going to end up in this, this situation where there's no good that can come of it. And, and Paul essentially says it's not so much. It would be bad enough if you settled these matters in, in front of, of everyone, if you announced, hey, we don't really care about each other in the church and we need to have this disagreement settled uh, you know, in the people's court, it, it would be bad enough there, right? But it, instead of that, you have these disagreements in the first place. You, you selfishly behave uh, even with one another and you find yourself in these situations with these disagreements. We have to apply the appropriate standard because when we don't, when we don't, things really unravel, which is really step number two, know what leads to the disagreements. What leads to the disagreements is misplaced standards. It's, it's trying to live after our own desires rather than after uh, what God desires for us. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, those living outside a relationship with Jesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul goes on to say. Why does he say don't be deceived? Because we can't claim to be a follower of Jesus and then live after our own selfish pursuits. We can't inherit the kingdom of God. That's an interesting phrase that I think we ought to unpack. It's maybe the most important phrase in these couple of verses. We, we get a list like this, right? And we, we want to deal with each, each individual thing on the list. We like lists and we like to know, hey, what's every one of those mean? But the kingdom of God is most important here. And knowing uh, what, what that is and, and how we fit in and, and what that looks like. Jesus had some interesting things to say about the kingdom. And he often told stories in order to get his uh, meaning 
carrying a cross. You might jot these verses down and read these stories later. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, uh, Jesus talks about a mustard seed, and he, he explains that the mustard seed is really small. It's a small seed, but when you plant it and you water it and it grows and it becomes something much larger, and the kingdom of God is like that mustard seed. It starts really small, and then it grows and grows and grows. And, and part of uh, Jesus' meaning is that, well, he's going to start the church with this group of, of 12 apostles, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow. And part of his meaning is, is that our relationship with Jesus begins in this small way. And just like Zach explained earlier during communion, look, we're not supposed to stay there. It's been Paul's point leading up to chapter 6 in the book of 1 Corinthians, that you ought not stay there. You shouldn't... Uh, continue to drink spiritual milk, but you want to grow in your relationship and you want it to change. And so the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed that starts small and then grows. And going on in chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus tells this story in verses 44 to 46. He tells a story about some pearls and about this treasure that somebody finds in a field. And they, they hide that treasure in the field and then they go and they sell everything they have to buy the field with the treasure. Because the kingdom of God is like that treasure. It's worth everything you have. It's worth all that you are. Uh, God desires for every part of our lives, every one of our relationships, every single one of our decisions to fall under that, uh, his standard and, and not the world's and not our own selfish desires. That's what the kingdom of God is like. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells this story about a, uh, an an employer who hires some folks for the day and he hires some folks beginning at the beginning of the day and he agrees on a wage with them and he pays them that wage and then he hires some folks in the middle of the day and he agrees on that same wage and he pays those folks that same wage and then he hires some folks at the very end of the day and he agrees on that same wage with them and he, he pays them that same wage and Jesus said this is what the kingdom of God is like that we're, the kingdom of God invites every one of us to say yes that it's never too late to say yes and that God's grace is dispensed in such a way that maybe doesn't make sense to the world but it falls beautifully under his standard under his umbrella and there's room enough and there's enough love and grace for every one of us we learn some really amazing things about the kingdom of God. But the two most amazing things to me about God's kingdom is that Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 16, he's, he's, uh, uh, he said, some of you won't die until you see the kingdom of God. And then he takes a few of his friends up on a mountain, and, and we call it this, what, this event the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus has this conversation with, with Moses and Elijah, and there's this bright light, and it's just this amazing experience that these three friends of Jesus have, have with him, and they have this conversation, and, and Jesus is saying, hey, look, the kingdom is here. I've inaugurated the kingdom. I've brought it into this world. And God's kingdom is present in our world. It's a, it's a present reality. And so as a part of God's kingdom, we have a responsibility to be his hands and feet, to love others and, as best we can in the way that Jesus loves us. We're, we're to make our, our world today God's kingdom. It's a present reality, which is this amazing thing that God would enter our world and that he'd make this difference and that he'd expect to work through us to make this kind of difference. But it's not the most amazing thing about God's kingdom. 
The most amazing thing about God's kingdom is that it's a future reality as well. That there's a promise that God makes to you and to I and to every one of us that when we say yes to Jesus, he makes a way for us to have a relationship with him that extends from the present into eternity forever and ever and ever. That God's kingdom will manifest itself ultimately in in paradise, in his presence, in heaven. Whatever word you want to use to describe that, however you want to think about that, the future reality of God's kingdom is way bigger and way more important than even the present reality of God's kingdom. And I think part of Paul's point here is that we just miss this. We get so caught up in the present reality that sometimes we confuse the standards, sometimes the one standard seems more relevant than the other, one standard seems more expedient than the other, and so we choose that losing focus on this future reality of God's kingdom that every one of us is invited to participate in, to be a part of. Paul makes this list of ways that sometimes we deceive ourselves and we run after our own selfish pursuits and you can't be a part of that future reality kingdom in the present reality kingdom while living selfishly, applying the wrong standards. And so step number three is finally just to be changed. Verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Right, Paul said, uh, some of you were pursuing your own selfish desires, you were applying the wrong standards, and now you've been changed. How were they changed? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. It's a, it's a picture, it points to baptism, to that initial uh, beginning of a relationship between you and Jesus and, and how he comes in and he cleans everything. He gives us that fresh start. He makes us new. He cleans us up. You look at a list and all those selfish desires and things that maybe we put ahead of of God's standard in our lives and you think, how can we do that? And here's the great thing is that we can't. We desperately need a Savior. We need this relationship with Jesus where his, His blood covers up those mistakes, where we're made new from the inside out with that relationship. It reminds me of baseball pants. Just bought Clayton a new pair of baseball pants, white baseball pants. And here's the reality. They're, they, they have not seen a game yet. And so they are beautiful and they are white and they are so very clean. The first time he wears those baseball pants, they will not be clean anymore. And they'll come home and somebody in our house, and by somebody I mean Sherry because she's the good person in our house. She'll work really hard to clean those baseball pants. You know, I should be better and help more, but she, she will work really hard. She has special soap. She has this special process. You know, you talk to moms of baseball players, and they all have this special sort of secret to how to clean baseball pants. Some take them to the high-pressure car washes. There's all kinds of things people do. Seriously, they're sold. Oh, no, you just need to go to the car wash. And you go to the car wash, and you wash the baseball pants, and guess what? They will not be clean. There's nothing any human can do to clean them ever again. All right? They won't be that stark white. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says that though your sin, though your iniquity 
is scarlet. It's red. It's stained. God makes you new, white, just like snow. You know, that's what a relationship, that's what that washing, saying yes to Jesus does in our life. He gives us that fresh start. But our, our God, Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't, he doesn't want to leave us where he finds us. Uh, Paul goes on to say that you were washed and you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were made holy. Uh, he said in verse 11, you were like this, but now you need to be changed, washed, sanctified, set apart. On that Kansas City Royals team, there's some really young players, some players who maybe are on a major league team for the very first time. And before, they were minor league players, and now they're major league players. And what's the expectation? The expectation is you'll stop playing like minor league players, and you'll start playing like major league players. And, and that's Jesus' expectation in our life. His expectation is that you won't stay the same. That you'll continue in a relationship with him and he will work on you from the inside out. But you've been set apart. You were pursuing your selfish desires. You were applying this worldly standard. But now, hey, you're in the major leagues. You have this relationship with the creator, sustainer, redeemer God that makes you different. It makes you new. You've been justified. You've been made right before God. Not anything that we've done, but Jesus' righteousness clothes us. It's cleaned us up enough to stand before God forever and ever and ever. That's the newness that he offers. He washes us new. He continues to grow us. He's made us right in God's standing. There's no disagreement we can have with God that he won't be able to fix. You know, these disagreements on teams happen all the time. My most favorite uh, disagreement on a Major League Baseball field that I've ever seen, and I've only seen it on, on uh, you know, recorded or whatever. I, I didn't see it live or anything like that. I was pretty young when it happened. But uh, in a game that the Royals were playing against the Yankees, George Brett hits a home run in Yankee Stadium. And he's rounding the bases. And as he rounds the bases, the manager of the Yankees comes out and he asks to see the bat. And he takes the bat that George Brett used to hit that home run and he gives it to the umpire and they measure the amount of pine tar that Brett had on the bat and they deem the bat illegal and they call George Brett out. And when they call George Brett out, he comes storming out of the dugout. He's just so mad and he's yelling and he's charging at the umpire and it's sort of, it's sort of funny to watch that he's so excited about this, so passionate, he's just so angry. And as they hold George Brett back, the best part of this story to me is, is that a couple of his teammates take the bat and they, they sort of smuggle it back into the clubhouse because they want to destroy the bat. They want to take the evidence and hide it, thinking that if they destroy the bat, they can't call this guy out because there's no more evidence. You know, sometimes that's how we, we want to sort of think about our lives, that maybe if I, can, if I can forget about that or if I can get rid of that or if I can just keep this disagreement between just these people, then none of that will really matter. And here's the deal. 
None of it works. The only thing that makes a difference in in that future reality of God's kingdom is a relationship with Jesus. To bring all of the pine tar in our life and just lay it out before him so he can wash us new, so he can sanctify us, set us apart, continue to grow us from the inside out so that we can be made right before God through that relationship. You can say yes to him today. Let's stand and worship him.